0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein.
1: Hey, Indoctrination fans, it's Meredith from the podcast Meredith for Real, The Curious Introvert. I talk with paradoxical people who share unlikely lessons, like the teen rehab survivor on separating identity from trauma, episode 60. If you like personal development and are ready to meet people outside the algorithm, come visit me at Meredith For Real, The Curious Introvert, wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Indoctrination. Here's your host, master listener, Rachel Bernstein.
0: Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guest for today, I just want to say two things. One is that there is still so much unrest all around the world. I mean, there are oftentimes of unrest in many places, but we are thinking about the people who are in Ukraine, people who have needed to emigrate to other places from Ukraine, people who are in flux, who are feeling unmoored right now. Just know that we are all thinking about you. I also wanted to make mention of something that I said to a client who said you might want to mention it on the podcast. And it was that... There are times when I am doing an interview and I'm on my computer and I am recording with someone and I need to lift the computer up a bit higher for whatever reason, just because of the height of the chair. And I try to take a book from my shelf that's thematically related to the theme of the show. It just feels connected to me in some way. And I said about nine times out of 10, the book that I choose is George Orwell's 1984. So very often... (laughs) If I have interviewed you, 1984 is right there under the computer because so much of what people deal with is this life where things have been so topsy turvy and up is down and down is up and right is wrong and truth is fiction, fiction's truth. So I wanted to introduce the guest for today. This is going to be a very powerful discussion and There's so much more for her to talk about, and I hope that she'll be able to come back on. She's doing groundbreaking work and has been through so much. Megan Lundstrom is the co-founder and director of research at the Avery Center. She has consulted for the Department of Homeland Security and Polaris Project. She's created and delivered training and educational presentations in the academic community as well as a variety of organizations, including the Commercial Sexual Exploitation Institute at Villanova University Law School. Ms. Lundstrom's research on cultic theory was internationally published through United Nations University and presented at the International Cultic Studies Association Annual Conference. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Finance and a Master's degree in Sociology. And now you're going to hear a story that happens to more people than you realize. And I'm so grateful that Megan took the time to tell us hers. Here's Megan now. I am honored to have Megan Lundstrom on the show today, who is an expert because of her experience and because of all that she's done since her experiences. And I think also an expert in tenacity and how to just stick with something to really get the point home and really educate the public and educate law enforcement. It can feel like kind of pushing a boulder uphill, I'm sure at times. So I would love for you to introduce yourself and then we'll start talking. So go for
1: it. My name is Megan Lundstrom. I am the co-founder and currently director of research at the Avery Center. We are based in Northern Colorado, but serve nationally, and we provide evidence-based services to victims and survivors of commercial sexual exploitation and sex trafficking.
0: There are so many parts to the story, and one part is your story. (laughs) And then there's the after story that is of equal importance. And within that story, because of the theme of this podcast, to talk about the control, manipulation, the indoctrination, how you came to feel trapped or how you came to feel about yourself, and then how you found freedom or clawed your way. And then what has helped you heal and also law enforcement and government and how they are learning from you and really need to learn from you. I know that I've had a lot of issues with police getting in the way of a rescue where there were years creating just the right situation where a family could possibly get their loved one back. And then the police stopped the rescue from happening. So frustrating. It was the family's one hope. It was all their savings. It was everything. And then what it did To the people, some of whom I've now talked to since, who were in that situation where the police interfered, they lost hope because there was a part of them inside that was actually needing and knowing that they needed to be rescued. And suddenly when the police let their captor go off with them, they didn't think there was anyone out there to protect them. So if anyone is listening who is in law enforcement or knows someone who is, you make such a huge impression on the level of hopefulness versus hopelessness in that moment in the way you intervene or don't. And that there are more laws, it seems at times, kind of protecting the violators, the controllers than their victims. So that is a huge part of this for me. But let's start on a personal level and just have you tell your story in any way
1: you want. Well, I'm really excited to be on because I feel like I have essentially lived in like high demand, high control groups my entire life and that's not a piece that I get to talk about often is my childhood. So I actually grew up in what is pretty much a very conservative, legalistic Christian cult. And both my parents met in the group and um, both of their families can be traced back for as many generations as we can on both sides. So grew up in, in that environment. And I think, you know, as we get to the end of the story, kind of reflecting back, obviously I didn't know this at this time, but understanding how I grew up in that environment really set the stage for what was to come in my trafficking experience. Outside of kind of the enmeshed boundaries, the um, shaming, um, the very controlling environment, I, from the outside, grew up in a very seemingly normal middle-class home. And it wasn't until I turned 18 and moved out that life really started to pick up momentum in a way that I didn't feel like I had much control over what was happening anymore. So, um, I ended up getting pregnant right out of high school, got married, um, to the father of my two older kids and tried to do the, the housewife married life thing at 18, 19 years old. My oldest son is now 17. And I look at him and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I have to have so much grace for myself at that age, because I'm like, he's so responsible and mature and he's a hard worker and he's a good kid. And like, he's still a kid. And I remember being 18, 19 and basically having all of this adult responsibilities thrust on me. And I I did the best that I could at the time, but at 18, 19, like it's, <laughs> it's hard. So the father of my two older kids has been a lifelong alcoholic and addict, and that again kind of fed in. So growing up in in this very controlling um, religious environment, and then ending up in a very abusive codependent relationship uh, with my two children, just furthered the normalization of. Again, my traffickers' behaviors. So, after five years of marriage, I uh, realized this was not a good situation for myself and my kids. My ex husband did not, at that point in time, want to change, very much stuck in his addiction. So, I decided that I wanted to move away an hour away from my family, my support system, everybody I had known my whole life, kind of really wanting to escape and thinking that. If I just physically removed myself from the people that were hurting me, that I could, you know, this idea of starting over. So I was not a runaway kiddo as a youth, but I became a runner as an adult. So moving away and starting over repeatedly, thinking that things were going to be different, not realizing that if I didn't work on what was going on inside of me, I was just going to attract and end up in the same environment over and over again. So moving down to Denver, I was probably down there maybe a month and working full-time in school, full-time had two kiddos that I was raising completely on my own. There's, there's just not enough hours in the day to do all of that. So feeling very just trapped in the day to day. Went to get gas on my lunch break and met this guy who seemed like somebody that maybe I could go on a date with. And nothing in that moment really was a red flag. It was a very casual interaction. People meet, you know, their life partners all the time in just these, you know, everyday occurrences. So I didn't really think anything of it. In hindsight, I can look back now and see that what happened after that was a fast tracking of a romantic relationship. And so within a few weeks, he had moved in with me and my children. And within about two or three months, he had groomed me into the commercial sex trade. So it happened very quickly perfect place to pause because
0: I will often ask people about their first impressions and that sometimes there's something they picked up on that they ignored. And sometimes the person is so good at not betraying anything really about themselves. And it's usually a very practiced act but as soon as they have the sense that they kind of have you and have your interest that's when this sort of the switch gets turned on and so when you're talking then and it, just to let people know as they're listening so it could be the first impression or it could be the second but early on, there's going to be something that's going to let you know something's off or something's different. You might not know what it is yet, but you might just feel it. So you were saying that he fast-tracked and right, thinking about the amount of time where suddenly he's living with you and your children. And so was there anything else that made you feel in retrospect, like you know, he was odd in some way. I mean, of course the grooming we can talk about and how that's done, but any way that he was with your children, anything like that?
1: Yeah, definitely. In hindsight, I can see hindsight is 2020, 20, right? So I can see so clearly what was happening And just letting somebody move in with me after three weeks, I'm like, oh, that's, that's a huge issue. Like I have people now that I've known for several years that have never been to my house, much less invited to live with me. So I very clearly remember that he took me out for Mother's Day and I did not get like a card or a text message or anything from the father of my children. And I just remember thinking like, this man cares And he honors me as a mother. And like the actual father of my children can't do those things for me. And he did a lot of love bombing, essentially. So offering to, you know, take my kids, like you go get your nails done. I'm going to take the kids to the park. Um, I'm bringing home dinner tonight. You don't need to cook. You know, you work so hard and you provide for your kids. I got you this gift. So there was lots of this, like, proof that he could provide that he could be a partner there was lots of questions around like wanting to get to know me and my family and what my hopes and dreams were for the future which again i now know you know he's assessing vulnerabilities where where are the current vulnerabilities how connected are you with your family and your friends and what can i use that's in the future as essentially a carrot to motivate you and Keep you working towards this goal that is constantly moving out of reach.
0: Right. This carrot, like uh, bait, really, Mm -hmm. right? That there is something also so interesting about what you're talking about about the collection of information. You don't know at the time why someone is asking you the questions they're asking you. It's only really after you get a sense of them that you understand the intention. But at the beginning, it just feels like they care. Right. And you're saying too, that he was very good at making you feel supported. He was very good at coming across as quite thoughtful, actually. So you're then going to lower your defenses, trust him. Also in that mode of reciprocity, you're going to feel like you can give back.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm currently in therapy learning how to heal my anxious attachment. So that's what I've been working on, which has been just a blast. Um, But really thinking back to that time and knowing that my emotional neglect in my childhood and understanding why my parents were the way they were because of how they were raised, but I did not have my emotional needs met as a child and I did not feel seen and I didn't feel like anything was ever good enough. And so to have somebody who saw me and wanted to know about me That felt so good in that moment that he literally did ask for whatever he wanted. And I was so hungry for, you know, that emotional need to be met that I just got sucked completely in.
0: Oh, it's so interesting because it's the hunger. And also, if he's been offering you something, if he's taking care of your kids and if he's paying for groceries or dinner, you might feel like you need to say yes to a request, even to something that might be uncomfortable.
1: Absolutely. And, and kind of twofold, right? So you talk about reciprocity of like, well, this man is, has come into my life and he's taking care of children that aren't even his. And like, I need to be pulling my weight in this relationship and giving to him. But also what if he leaves? So this fear of like, if he leaves, how do I feed my kids? How do I support my kids? How do I do all these things by myself?
0: Hmm. Right. So you will do what you can then to keep him there. And that means pleasing him, being kind of open to suggestions, ideas, right? So there is a dependency that he created in you. Absolutely. Okay. So then when you're talking about him grooming you, what was that like?
1: So the grooming process is gradual expansion of boundaries the analogy of like a frog in a pot of boiling water, which I think is so accurate. You know, like if he had approached me and said, do you want to work in prostitution? You won't get to keep the money and you won't see your kids like get in my car. Nobody in their right mind is going to do that. Like literally nobody. And for whatever reason, we think that predators are just very transparent and honest with their intentions. But the truth is that wouldn't work. And so they come up with much gentler ways of easing into it. So he began kind of planting these ideas of, you know, you're so beautiful. Have you thought of working as a dancer in a strip club? And so he would ask something like that in the middle of just a regular conversation. And he would watch my reaction to that. And he would respond and turn the conversation based on that response. So the first time he brought it up, I was like, oh, no way. Like I have family in the area. Like I'm I'm too scared. I don't want anybody to know that I was doing something like that. And so he would back off and he'd say, oh, totally that that makes sense. I just think you're so beautiful and you could probably make a lot of money. So that seed is planted. And, and so then he would come back, you know, maybe a week later and say, you know, my, my ex-girlfriend, she worked at like a happy endings massage place and she made really good money. And I wasn't jealous of what she was doing because I knew that it was just for money and it was going towards like our household. So again, like planting these seeds and watering them over time. So I'm thinking about it. In the back of my head, it's just in the back of my head, kind of just mulling around, but he's not pushing anything. So traffickers, like a lot of predators, they're opportunists. They're waiting for that that moment. And in our research at the Avery Center, we refer to it as the perfect storm. So it's never one thing. There's like eight things that happen all at the same time, and it creates this perfect storm of opportunity for a trafficker. So about that time, uh, my divorce had been finalized. My ex-husband was financially abusing me. So I had to send him my bank statements every week before he would send the child support payment. And if he didn't like the things that I had spent money on, he would deduct those from what he was going to pay me. So that child support was about 50% of my income at that time. So I was, again, very dependent on my ex-husband, which just was another layer of like, I don't want to be dependent on him. I want to move on with my life. I want to move forward. So that was going on kind of just in the background. And my trafficker, um, who I thought was my boyfriend, was saying things again with this this grooming, like you could work in a strip club and you wouldn't have to depend on your ex-husband. So watering those seeds. During that exact same time, so this was 2008 housing market crash, my ex-husband stopped paying the mortgage on our house and didn't tell me until we were three months delinquent. And so at that time, he was like, I don't know, like, you're going to have to figure it out. I'm, you're on your own. My name's still on the house. So I'm like, I can't have a foreclosure on my record. Like, what am I supposed to do? So now I have to take on a mortgage too. And I'm not living in the house. He he had been living in the house. So all of these things are starting to pile up. And then my car breaks down and I, I cannot even get to work. I cannot get to school and I'm hanging on by a thread anyways. There's no way that I can pay to repair my car. I don't have any savings. I'm just, I'm stranded. So all of these things happened within the course of just a few weeks. And my trafficker just so happened to be in my life at that same time. So that's how this perfect storm happens. So when I reached out to him and that final straw was my ex-husband had called me and said, like, I don't have any more money. Um, His addiction had just essentially consumed his whole life. And he said, I can't even pay you child support. So then I lost 50% of my income. I can't get to the job that I did have. And I have this looming foreclosure over my head. And I have this amazing man who is sweet and kind to me and my children. And he's helping out where he can. And he's also making suggestions of ways that I could be making more money and not have to depend on, you know, my ex-husband and, and live in poverty. So I remember calling him and I just said, you know, I, I need to do something like, I don't even have enough money to pay my bills this month. I don't know what to do. And that's when he sees that opportunity. And he said, I'm going to teach you how to post an ad on back page.
0: Wow. Okay. You know, one of the things that I, talk to a lot of people about, uh, especially to families, is about making sure that they are there in the wings, no matter what. Because it sounds like from what you were talking about with your childhood, you couldn't necessarily go back to your home. They were not going to be approving of the life that you were living. And so, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like they weren't an option. So you were only left with one option, which was this man.
1: Yeah, I felt very just completely on my own. I remember calling my parents cause I had bounced like a $30 check and got, you know, $200 in overdraft fees. Cause it snowballs. And I remember my parents telling me, essentially you've made this bed. You have to sleep in it. Like you're on your own. So I completely agree with you. Like it was in, in the big scope of things, a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars really could have stopped this entire trajectory And I didn't, I didn't have that foundation that I could fall back on.
0: Right. So powerful. I just, I really want parents to hear that message. Sometimes when people ask me what kind of person gets involved in a controlled situation, I'll say, yeah, we can talk about who, but it's often when. It is that you're just diagnosed with an illness and some group offers you, you know, immortality or you have no money and this person comes into your life who can be your benefactor and how nice that they can provide you with that security and safety. And also this idea, too, about people being opportunists and also introducing an idea into your head, it's something you wouldn't have thought about before as a possibility. It's like desensitization over time. All right, so then he helps you with putting an ad, and then that starts this whole other
1: trajectory. absolutely, so at that point, you know, I called him. I called my boyfriend. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I need to make money to pay rent by the end of this month. And he was like, okay, I'll show you how to post a back page ad. And I remember, I don't know if I told him this out loud or in my head, but I was like, I'm just going to do this to pay the bills. Nobody has to know about it. I just need to like get my car fixed or, you know, buy another, you know, little cheap car because i just need to keep being able to go to work that's the big thing right now and then then i can work on these other things what i know now is that whether i articulated that to him or not he knew that as soon as that boundary was violated for the first time it's so easy to just steamroll that boundary going forward so where i thought it was going to be like this is a one time thing i'm just going to you know fix these immediate problems and then go move on with life he was thinking This is all it takes, and she's in. So yeah, I it started like me really thinking that this was just going to be a few times that I was going to be able to pay all of these bills. And what ultimately happened was that he started taking the money and telling me what I was, how much I was able to pay of which things. And it was never quite enough to cover everything. So it's like a, a cycle of debt bondage where you pay almost everything, but not enough. So you have to stay in it for one more month. And over time, you're just conditioned into this is how life is going to be.
0: There's something so interesting about what you're talking about, about debt bondage. The fact that, of course, he's taking your money. You're hard-earned money. So I'm just curious about that and how you felt about that. And also that he decides if there's enough and if he wants to promote you doing more of that work, then there is never going to be enough. And it's like people who will go into groups where they're told by the leader that they can achieve something that's immeasurable, like enlightenment. And so how do you know you achieved it? It's not like a bell goes off, right? Or like you reach a finish line that you can see the other person. Person gets to decide. uh, And you have to give over that power to them that suddenly they get to say, when you've worked hard enough, when you've done enough, or when you haven't. And it really detaches you from your life. And so when he said, you know, that you needed to give him the money, what was the reasoning? What was the excuse he gave about that?
1: I think back to that piece. And I again think about how I was raised and just gender roles that I was socialized into. So, as a woman, like that's not your place. You may earn some of the money for the household, but the man makes the decisions. So, there was some of that. And there was also a lot of him puffing himself up to be more of a financial advisor than in reality he was. So, me trusting that, you know, this guy says he owns several businesses, he's got, you know, nice cars, nice clothes, nice jewelry seems to like have clearly he's doing something right. Um, with his money. And if he's willing to show me how to do that, then I should trust him. So I think those two things kind of went hand in hand.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So then you then needed to keep working more and more. And what happened
1: then? Eventually. So I was still working my day job. I actually worked at a private school in a kindergarten classroom. And so I was being trafficked at night. So I would work during the day. That was kind of my cover. And then I would go home and I would work till, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning and go to sleep for just a couple hours and then do it over again. So you had the sleep deprivation. I mean, just to this day, people are like, do you sleep? I'm like, yes, I'm still catching up from a decade ago of sleep deprivation. I sleep so much. So there was sleep deprivation, but also I just, it got to a breaking point of, I can't be doing all of these things. Um, I'm literally burning the candle at both ends, but starting to do the math of, you know, I'm making nine or $10 an hour at this private school and I have to show up and I have to follow all of these rules. And really I could set my own schedule and I could make more money. Not that I was keeping any of it, but in my head, this was the, you know, the, the rationalizations that were happening of, I'm never going to get anywhere if I'm just stuck in this like rat race job, that's just, I show up every day and I punch the clock and like, there's no opportunity for success. There's no opportunity for exiting out of this. And so at that point I made the decision, I'm just going to quit my day job because I cannot juggle all of these pieces. And then was just in prostitution full time from that point forward, which just furthered the dependency upon my trafficker. I did not have not just any other income at that point, but I also had zero social connection to anybody. So at least during that time, I had other people around me that could see me, that I could check in with, that I could ask for help from, but in quitting, I'm now isolated from my family, I'm isolated from my friends because I'm working 24 hours a day, 22 hours a day, and and I don't have, you know, colleagues. I don't have any frame of reference outside of what this man is telling me anymore.
0: Okay, so suddenly working 22 hours a day, absolutely exhausting, and there's no way also for you to be totally present. And so I'm wondering at that point what it was like for you to be a mother. How your life right away from the kids in a, in a life that I'm sure that they would not have ever assumed, nor would you have assumed for yourself? How did you make sense of that in your mind? What did you do? Did you need to put it away somewhere when you were with your kids?
1: Yeah. So this is something that I would love to do more research on. So pimp controlled trafficking, you're usually given by somebody, whether it's your buyer or your trafficker, but you're given essentially a stage name. Sometimes you get to pick your name. And I think there's a protective factor to that because you get to become somebody other than yourself. What's happening to that person is different than, you know, Megan, the mom and Megan, the partner and Megan, the daughter and all of those other roles that I filled. So it was very compartmentalized, extremely dissociated. Like there's there's just chunks of time that I don't have. One of the memories that I've talked about in therapy that I don't have is when my kids lost their teeth. I don't have those memories of my kids. So that's really hard because I know that I was physically there, but I was not, I was not emotionally present for them. And, and now 10 years later, we're all in therapy working on that now because they have those memories of we don't know if mom's going to come home and this guy is really mean to us and he's kind of scary and you know when mom is home she's angry or sad or she's just like gone and we're we're still working on that stuff you know 10 years out
0: mm. it might be hard to think of it this way in any kind of a positive way now but you are gifting your children with an opportunity for them to get help with this and for you to be available and open To hearing their feelings because for some people it's too much, which is also understandable, but just the fact that you know how they feel and you know what they struggled with, it means you heard it. You were listening. You want to be able to heal together, which is really a wonderful thing to do. But yes, in retrospect, no, this was not at all the way that you would have raised your kids. And I'm sure a lot of what you do now is very corrective and, yes. <laughs> uh, right? and making up for lost time and probably calling them more than they might even want. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They're like, gosh, mom, stop. <laughs> right. Please give us some space. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. But that's really, it's a wonderful thing. You know, I think about controllers as thieves. It's a word that always comes into my mind, how much they steal from a person and that they stole those moments, even though you get to have newer moments with them now, but and that they just didn't care. It's a crime. It's an emotional crime. Wow. So you had to compartmentalize in order to survive. And then what happened? How long did that go on for?
1: So I was with my first trafficker um, whom I thought was a boyfriend for about four years tried ending the relationship, moving to a new part of town, moving across the country. That's where that kind of running behavior comes from thinking like, folks like this won't seek me back out again. And he always found me and very much, you know, the domestic violence, like the cycle of power and control. And so the love bombing, the honeymoon period, the tension, then there'd be a big explosion and then apologies. And going around and around that while experiencing trauma in the commercial sex trade, I was completely trauma bonded to him, like physically, emotionally addicted to him and this roller coaster that we were constantly on. Eventually, after about four years, I was able to escape for the last time from him. But at that time, you know, I'm, I'm now completely isolated from the outside world and ended up getting a permanent restraining order against him, uh, which is kind of where my, my journey with law enforcement began. So I'm glad that you brought them up at the beginning of this because I I love working with law enforcement today. And it's such a piece of restorative justice for me to educate on what they could have done and just sadly didn't do anything.
0: What did happen when you went to law enforcement, when you tried to get a restraining order?
1: So I got the restraining order. It was granted, but my trafficker was super smart. So he would text me threatening messages and I would call the police and they'd come out and they'd say, Well, we'll make a report, but we can't prove that it was him, even though like we can see this threat and it makes sense within the context of everything you've told us, but we can't do anything. Or he would drive through my apartment complex parking lot. And so I'd call the police and they'd say, Well, it's public property. He is X number of feet away from your actual residence. We can't enforce anything. And so he just eeked by multiple times. So I called the cops probably, I think two or three times while we were together trying to escape him. Um, But they would try to question me in front of him and say, what's going on? You know, like there's things like that, that you're like, I just hope that we can do better for people in, in all kinds of situations that we're not questioning them right in front of their abuser, because you're not going to get, you're not going to get the truth. It's not safe for them to tell you the truth in a situation like that. So There had been multiple contacts over those four years for like domestic violence or just neighbors calling the cops because of a loud fight or whatever. But with the restraining order, I think I'd called the police maybe four times, five times, and then just realized protection orders aren't going to work. The only thing that I can do with a protection order is give him a paper cut if he is strangling me. That's all that this is good for is hit him in the face with the papers. And so I just realized what my, what my pimp had told me no one cares. Nobody can help you. I'm above the law. I'm you know, more powerful than anybody. Nobody can touch me. And I was like, it's true. Nobody can touch him. Law enforcement can't even intervene in this situation. And if law enforcement can't, then who else can? And that's really what led me to, I, again, had this accidental interaction with another trafficker, who I explained the situation to him, not knowing his motives. Told him that I was fleeing the situation, and he asked me, "You know, will you move out to Vegas? That's where I'm from. I can take care of you. I can protect you out there. I'll call this guy and tell him to leave you alone, and I'll keep you and your kids safe." What happened from that point forward is something um, that is very common within pimp culture. So it's it's a process called serving. Where a new trafficker calls the old trafficker, and essentially you're sold as a victim from one trafficker to the next. And it's a whole process. And I didn't know that that's ultimately what was going on behind the scenes at the time. I thought, finally, somebody's going to get me out of this situation. And as soon as he had that conversation with the first trafficker, the harassment stopped. And I thought the cops couldn't even get him to stop. And this man can, this man can keep me safe. He can protect me and he's not judging me for what I'm engaging in. He's supportive of it, at least from my perspective at the time, but the cycle continued. So I moved out to Vegas again, fleeing this situation, fleeing these toxic, hurtful people and relationships. And the second I got out there, the first night I moved into my place, I was like, it'll take me a couple of weeks to get moved in. And he's like, yeah, that's great. So you you need to go get dressed up because my bottom, which is kind of second in command, she's going to come pick you up and teach you how to work um, in the casinos here in Vegas. So the exploitation just continued from that point forward. I was out there for I think eight months. I was arrested my very first night. So that was my first arrest ever spent the night or morning in jail. And then I was arrested a total of 11 times in, um, or well, 10 times in eight months. And then I was arrested one time after leaving, Vegas. So it became this revolving door of going to jail. And then, um, my pimp would, bail me out and send me somewhere else in the country for a week, um, to kind of get off the radar of the vice squad there. And it just became a blur. Like it was just nonstop. So it was working all night, coming home, catching a few hours of sleep, and then taking care of my kids, going to the gym. We were expected to, you know, go to the gym go to the tanning salon, have our nails done, our hair done, our vehicles clean, you know, all of that stuff had to be done. There were so many rules to everything. So you had no time to think about leaving. You had no money to do so. It was just a constant state of survival. And the second, you know, you thought you'd got caught up, he would call and say, you need to go to this city. You need to go out of town. You need to go do this. And that would just set forth, you know, another layer of chaos and and transition.
0: Right. For you and for your kids. And missing in that story is the fact, you know, you this is missing in almost every story like this. Nothing happens to the trafficker. Nothing happens to the pimp. They don't get arrested, but you wind up in jail over and over and over and over again. And so I'm sure that's something that you've added to your to-do list when talking to law enforcement about how that needs to change?
1: I actually have all of my mug shots. And so when I do presentations to law enforcement, you know, I introduce myself professionally and then I put those up on the screen and I say, I love being in front of you guys to educate you instead of in the backseat of your car. And that's really how I transition into sharing what was going on at the time. And I have, you know, professional photos from all of my online advertisements of that time. And if you look at them, I'm smiling, I'm happy, I'm flirty, I'm, I look like I'm having fun. But then you see the mug shots and you're like, oh my gosh, no fun was had. But when, when police are intervening in situations like that, and they think that they're helping, they're actually causing so much harm and so much more mistrust, but also kind of furthering this belief that like my trafficker, again, like is above the law. He's untouchable. He really does know everything. I should not listen to anybody else because he knows what he's doing.
0: It's a very difficult situation with traffickers and with abusers in general, with cult leaders. They become much more crafty when they learn how they can work around the law. And I think they become much more cruel because they can and they feel entitled. And, you know, I don't think police and maybe now with your help, they they might realize, but I think in a lot of situations, they don't realize they're creating more
1: of a monster. Yeah. We just did a training for local law enforcement um, and victim service providers. So we have this, this bottom that I mentioned. So this is like second in command. Oftentimes bottoms get charged as co-facilitators in trafficking cases because traffickers put all of the legal liability on the bottom. So the bottom is the one picking up all the other victims and taking them out and showing them how to work the casinos. The bottom is the one that is posting the ads, collecting the money, communicating kind of as the the go-between for the trafficker and the rest of the stable. And so we we did a presentation about Bottoms. Um, My co-founder was presenting on some of her research. And one of the officers interrupted her and began arguing that essentially, so they were trying to draw this parallel between drug trafficking and human trafficking. But what he was saying was equating us as victims to a product, which we are at the end of the day, but in a way that was so harsh and just depersonalized. And he continued to argue that you have to arrest the bottoms because they need to be held accountable for what they're doing. And, you know, so she's like, actually I've researched to show that that is not effective, but I had to raise my hand. And I was like, just a reminder, like there's many survivors sitting in this conference right now that are listening to you equate us to you know, a kilo of cocaine, but also what I hear from you is that you would rather work for my trafficker than keep me safe because you're playing right into his plan of going after the bottom instead of him, because you're so focused on the bottom is doing these things that she needs to be held accountable for them that you can't take a step back and look at who's orchestrating this entire thing though. It was such a tense moment and it was so hurtful and discouraging to hear that resistance because they're they're wanting to check the boxes. Well, she was the one that was at the ATM we have her on the video. Doesn't mean that that she was doing that of her own free will.
0: Oh my goodness. It's so frustrating.
1: It's so frustrating. Sometimes people will ask me, who
0: are the victims in these situations? And I will always say to varying degrees, anyone who is under the control of the leader, even if they're playing a role. And usually it's interesting, the bottom, it's an interesting term. I've been calling them like the fall woman instead of fall guy. There is usually a number two who's a woman, which I think is just because of misogyny, that then they can be the ones to be the bad guys. They can be the recruiters. They can be the groomers. They can be the ones to put their names on things too. They're the ones who are gonna show up on a surveillance camera. It's happened with... uh, This group, Rajneesh, that was, you know, in Oregon. L. Ron Hubbard also sent his wife, among other people, to go raid government offices, right? So she would get arrested. Keith Raniere had all these women doing the recruiting, recruiting women into DOS, where they were going to get branded. So how much are they the victim? Always to a certain degree. There, There's no way. They, they didn't start this ball rolling. They're not the ones in control of, of everything that they're doing. But to see that, just that lack of humanity in the way that he was responding to this. It shows just how important it is that you're doing this, but also how hard you need to work. You almost needed to bring him into the place of just having humanity, of seeing you as a person, of seeing her as a person.
1: It's such a heavy lift. And there's I've had the privilege of working with so many incredible law enforcement officers and I think that he's definitely in the minority, but it is it it's those moments where you're like oh my gosh, like, have we, have we made any progress just as humans, not even with this issue, but like just seeing people as people and understanding the human element behind any interaction. And you're like, no, we've okay. We've done nothing here. It's discouraging moments for sure.
0: I have a friend who's a psychiatrist whose job it is to go to different places to help in communities where there is sex trafficking. She does a lot of work in Bangkok. Part of what she realized that she needed to do was she had to start with something before she could give her talk, which was for a lot of the men and boys in the community, for them to be told and taught that a prostitute is still a human being.
1: We're like, this is where we're starting at? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: I would love to hear about the manipulation and and the trauma bond, how you came to be reliant on your abusers and
1: what that does to you and also
0: how you broke free finally.
1: I think back to Vegas and I think it was just so chaotic. I feel like I blinked and I had been there eight months and had this huge, you know, prostitution record with that second trafficker. I really do feel like I kind of had a moment where I snapped out of it and woke up. He had taken me out to dinner at a nice place and was, you know, praising me and telling me that I was working so hard. And he said, you know, you you've been with me for a long time. I really I can tell that you're going to be loyal. And I want to buy you a car. What kind of car do you want? And I told him I wanted the Mercedes Benz S550 or a um, white Range Rover. I was like, I want one of those two. And he's like, okay just keep doing a good job. So I went home thinking like, okay, I've been here for, you know, six, seven months now. I haven't really seen anything. Like my basic needs are met for the most part it's conditionally met, but like they're being met, but maybe he's been waiting this whole time. And he really does have a big plan. I don't even know that it was a week later. And he called and said, we're going on a trip to California. Uh, You need to get ready. The bottom's going to pick you up. So I was like, okay, um, packed my bags, went outside and she pulled up in a used S550. And I was like, what's this? And she's like, oh, he just got it for me. This is, you know, my new car. And in that moment, I just had this, like, she's been with him for five years and he bought her a used vehicle that probably isn't even in her name that she's going to pay the car note on. And here I am, it's not even been a year and I'm telling him, I want a brand new version of this car. There's no way that he's going to be able, like, he's not going to get this for me. That was the moment when it was like the reality, just the bubble that I was living in kind of shattered. And I was just like, I was in shock for that whole trip. I got back uh, and wasn't making, I wasn't earning my quota. Um, I was so scared of going to jail. So I just avoided going in the casinos. I was terrified to solicit anybody for fear. I was going to be arrested. And I was like, and for what, like, why do I keep going to jail? If like, I'm not ever going to have, have the things that I like want or need. And so my motivation started to just decrease and he tried everything. So he tried, you know, giving me a motivational beach he tried beating me um he had his bottom come talk with me and try to give me a pep talk and i just i was done like i had just shut down i was like i'm not i don't know what's next but like this literally is not adding up in my head so after a couple of weeks of you know that not meeting that quota not um performing at the level he was expecting me to um he put me on house arrest And said, you need to stay in your house. You cannot leave. I'm taking away your babysitter. You know, you're stuck here with your kids and you need to figure this out. Um, And so it kind of became like this hostage standoff situation of how long till you run out of food and get desperate and come back begging for help. So I don't, there's moments where I'm like, there was some type of divine intervention or forces at play or energy. I don't know. But I had a little bit of money in my bank account and I ordered a book on Amazon because I remember thinking in my head, I'm just being like, Am I being pimped wrong? Or am I like, Am I doing this wrong? I'm just not doing it right. Like, I'm not understanding what I'm supposed to be doing because I'm getting in trouble for everything. He tells me to do something and I do it and I get in trouble for that. So the next time I don't do it and then I get in trouble for that. And then the rules change. So, I mean, gaslighting. But at the time, I was just like, I'm doing this wrong and I want to do it right because I know how much money I'm making. I know what I could potentially have in my life and I'm not seeing any of it. So I ordered this book that was written by a pimp and it was, it's basically a how to manual of how to psychologically abuse women, how to recruit them, how to groom them. And um, he described a whole bunch of tactics. And the one that I really was like, oh my gosh, this is what's happening. He talked about pitting victims against each other and getting them to compete for attention with each other and, and how it, it keeps you so distracted in fighting that you're not actually paying attention to the person that's orchestrating this entire thing. And I remember thinking of so many situations where he would say, you know, this, this woman made this much money. Why didn't you make that much? Or he would make a point to mention like, oh, well, I just, you know, stay the night at, at this woman's house. I'd love to do the same with you, but like, you're not behaving like, and so then I would get competitive with the other women instead of focusing on him, who he was the one being manipulative to all of us. So those were kind of like those two moments, like the car, and then seeing that, that I was like, this is actually how it is supposed to be. This is like, so pimp controlled trafficking is sometimes referred to as the game. And I was like, oh, it is a game. Like it is a giant game and traffickers are the ones playing it and enjoying it. And they're moving people around on this chessboard. They're using us as pawns in their own sick game that only benefits them at the end of the day. So that's when I had that, that realization of, I don't have anybody to reach out to for help. I'm completely alone, not just emotionally, but physically and geographically. I'm, you know, in a completely different state from my family. I have no contact with anybody. And that's the point that, that I did reach out to my family because I did not know who else to call.
0: Okay, so to go back to what you were saying, and then I want to hear about that call to your family. My goodness. So interesting you bring this up because it happens in every cultic group and also in a manipulative relationship where drama is manufactured. And there's a lot of infighting, a lot of competition. People are usually put in this situation where they have to compete to be the favored one. And it's all too easy to lose your status or lose your standing and be demoted. And you have to kind of crawl out of some hole that was dug for you. That's very deep. And prove yourself again. And anyone listening, if you find yourself in a situation where you're starting to really question this person who is controlling you, but you find that your focus seems to be on all these other people, probably all these other women, then that's on purpose. And to keep your eye on the ball and to remember who is the one who really is the puppet master, who's the one pulling the strings for all of this. You even see it in schools, You know the whole idea of the queen bee uh, and the wannabe. So the queen bee causes infighting all the time. Who gets invited to the cool lunch table and who doesn't? That's very purposeful to kind of keep people in their place and to cause people to be jealous and fighting. So it happens even in those kinds of environments. It's not like pimps invented it, but they use it and it's This huge distraction. And I yeah, I want to caution people about letting that work, that when they throw the ball over there, don't track it with your eyes. Keep your eyes on them. Okay, so you call your family. And it had been many years.
1: Yeah. So I had been in contact with them, I mean, periodically, usually for you know, a 15-minute phone call. I think we did this was back in the era before Zoom. So I remember we did like a Skype call. My parents had been in contact with me and my kids maybe just a handful of times while I was in Vegas. They were aware that I was in prostitution by that point of time. When I had gotten arrested for the first time, my ex husband had some type of a report alert for my name. And so he got an alert that I had been arrested on prostitution charges and within hours had called my parents to tell them. So they found out that piece. This was back in. 2011, 2012, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act and anti-trafficking efforts here in the United States did not start until 2010. And so I think that's a, a really important like macro historical piece to keep in mind because there is so much more education and so many more resources now. But when my parents heard that I was in prostitution, they had no frame of reference. They had no resources. They had reached out to a couple different organizations trying, like trying to make sense of what was happening, but nobody had them go through like, you know, a screening tool or like a set of questions of like, is somebody controlling this? Like, is there something else going on? And so the conclusion that they landed on based on their religious background was that I just had a sex addiction and I was out of control. And so they had offered uh, when I had first moved to Vegas, and they found out they had offered to send me to a sex addiction rehab facility. That was really the point when I kind of cut off communication from them because I remember thinking, "You guys have no idea what is happening right now," and I didn't feel safe enough disclosing to them what was happening. But it was just, you know, my trafficker played on those moments of like, "See, your your family doesn't even understand you. Like, they don't understand like what." What you're working towards, they don't understand what we're doing. So when I called them, I remember talking to my dad and just sobbing, telling him I'm all alone out here. I don't have all of my friends from Colorado. Like I haven't talked to any of them. My the nanny was a um, family member of my trafficker, and so she was in my house. She monitored all of my communications. She reported back to my trafficker, and I was just like, I don't. I can't stay out here. I, I don't know what to do, but like, I can't do this. Like I don't have anybody. I work all the time and I come home and like, that's it. And I'll never forget my dad. So I was born and raised in Greeley, Colorado. The population's increased a little bit. The county is one of the fastest growing counties in the, in the country right now, but growing up there, it was like 80,000 people maybe. So I told, I was like, you know, I, I need to come home. And so he said, okay, so are you going to move back to Denver then? Like, what do you need? And I said, no, I'm not coming back to Denver. Like I need to come back to Greeley. And I wouldn't have been surprised if he had dropped the phone because I was, I was that kid that was like, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back to the small town. And I think that was the moment that he was like, oh, this is bad, bad. Like, this is really serious. This is not just like, you're calling to vent and you'll have a plan and you're going to continue adulting. It was, she's hit rock bottom and there's, there's nothing left. So I talked with him and uh, he talked with my mom. Um, I have a younger sister and we kind of came up with a plan of for over the next month to start, you know, packing up my belongings, withdrawing my kids from school, saving up some money so that I could move. And my sister was going to fly out and help me move home. So they knew that I didn't, they didn't really, again, like they didn't know that I had a pimp, but I had just told them, you know, I kind of, I need to wrap things up here in Vegas. So after that phone call and kind of having a plan with my family, I called my trafficker And he, I remember he answered the phone and was like, I see you're ready to talk. Have you learned your lesson? And in my head, I was like, you made the wrong move with that one. Like that, that was not what you should have done because that was, that was it. And so I, I told him like, I can't do this out here. I'm moving back to Colorado. And he had a very different response than my first trafficker. So my first trafficker engaged in a ton of stalking, drive-by shootings, armed robbery, like all kinds of stuff. Vegas, because the supply of vulnerable women is so high there. And my trafficker out there, I think was just kind of a higher level of intelligence than my first trafficker, but he realized it wasn't worth the risk to pursue me, to act violently. And he, I think could tell like the spell has been broken and once the spell's been broken, like you can't pull that wool over somebody's eyes again. And so he told me, he kind of tried to, you know, salvage his ego with the kind of like a, you're not quitting, you're fired. And I was like, that's fine. Whatever you need to put on my resume is totally fine. Whatever you win. And he just said, don't let me see you in Vegas again. Um, If I see you on the strip, That's when things were going to have problems. And I was like, not a problem. I'm leaving. So my sister did fly out and helped me load up my moving van. And she drove my car and I drove the moving truck. Uh, We drove 16 hours through the night's. We always joke that we got abducted by aliens at some point in Utah. There, there's like a couple hours of like missing time that we we still joke about to this day of I don't, we were just, I think, delirious from driving, but made it back home. And that wasn't the end. <laughs> there's more.
0: Oh, wow. OK, that happens a lot, too, where controllers need to have the last word. You also get to a point where you say <laughs> whatever you need to say. Call me anything. I'm still leaving. It almost seems pathetic at that point for them to keep attempting to be holding power over you when your bags are packed. But yeah, most people won't get this kind of luxury of being able to leave and say, I'm out. And the other person says, you're right. And this was wrong. And I wish you well. That's not how it's going to be. And to just ignore really whatever they say, that's going to be a lot of bluster and needing to reclaim control or power, or having the last word, all of it, whatever it is, it's, it's meaningless. And to not let that scare you and to not let that make you stay because then if you're fired, somehow you have to feel like somehow you need to do something to get back into that person's good grace. No, it's just their insecurity in that moment and ignore it. I'm
1: so glad you did. Okay. So now you're home and what happened? Yeah. So I, I was homeless at that point. So put everything in a storage unit. And thankfully my parents were like, okay, you can stay here very short term. It was over the summer. And I was probably there just a few days. And my mom came to me and brought me a brochure for a residential program for women coming out of all kinds of situations. So coming out of incarceration, in recovery from substance use disorder, prostitution, kind of just, you know, a residential program. And she was like, you know, it's the summer. You could go into this program. The kids can stay with us. I think this would be a good next step for you. And to this, like right now, I'm just feeling so angry in my body thinking about the offer to leave my children. That was always a non-negotiable for me. I will not leave my children, even with my parents. And I think would they have been fine? Probably yes. To abandon my children I was not willing to do that under any circumstances. They had been with me through hell and high water. No, I would not separate from them, especially to go into a residential program and not see them for 30 days or six months, like just not happening. I remember like looking at my mom, like I'm, I'm not done. Like in my head, the spell with pimps had been broken but the i was still completely trapped in the commercial sex trade i think there was an element definitely an element of like excitement i think there's there's trauma bonding to just that environment the excitement and the abuse like all of it just ties together and creates this chaos that that you get hooked on but i also was like i need to make money like I need to have a roof over my head. I have bills. I have mouths to feed. I can't just check out the way that their dad did. And like parenting's too hard. I'm just going to take a break from it. That that's never been how I have viewed raising my children.
0: Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I'm wondering also if there's just thinking about this, the trauma bonding and and thinking that you're not done with that, is there an addictive quality to the intensity? Of the life.
1: For sure. I mean, there's a a saying in the pimp game that's addicted to the money, addicted to the life, addicted to the game. And so many women, when asking them, you know, even women who maybe have not had a third party controller or gotten away from their controller and just stayed independent in the commercial sex trade for years afterwards, all of us talk about like just being addicted to the money, being addicted to just the fast life. You don't know what's coming next. And there's an element of excitement that comes with that. That's hard to break.
0: I remember one time someone talking about how they realized they had become, well, she said in this sick way is what had she said in the sick way, I had become addicted to this feeling of survival that each day that I survived, I felt powerful because there was so much I needed to survive. And I had to find my way and and fend off people or defend or just endure and still survive. And she was wondering if she was going to be able to get that feeling not in the sex trade that she was going to, she was afraid she wasn't going to feel strong and powerful, almost somehow like she could get proof that she could protect herself over and over again.
1: Absolutely. So we refer to it as a trauma loop. The number one risk factor for entering the commercial sex trade, and this has been proven in study after study after study, is a history of child sexual abuse or assault. And when you think about this trauma loop through that lens, we see it all the time and we hear it. And I know that I've experienced it. So when you experience sexual trauma... And then you are offered a chance to regain control over the same environment, over the same people, over the same behaviors that becomes addicting in itself. And you try to master that past trauma. And what happens sadly is like the commercial sex trade is never going to be empowering. You may have moments that feel empowering because you were in that moment able to master you know, your memories of a past trauma, but it doesn't heal that past trauma. You can't empower your way out of a traumatic experience. And those experiences are so few and far between new traumas that you're in this never ending loop of, I have to gain control. I have to gain control. So I still do this to this day. I was just a couple of weeks ago in therapy. So we do, we work uh, with law enforcement and we do undercover operations to go after commercial sex buyers. So men who are attempting to pay for sex from likely an exploited person. And um, I do a lot of what's called chatting which is the talking to them to get probable cause and get them to show up and then law enforcement arrest them. For the past couple of years, I have found it so empowering to do that. And this last operation, um, a buyer said something very violent towards me that triggered all of my past trauma. And so I was talking about it with my therapist and she was like, why, why are you texting? Like, why do they have you doing that? That's like insane that you're you're having to do that. And I was like, well, I want to. And she was like, why? And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm in a trauma loop right now. I'm trying to regain control in the present time over these transactions that I did not have any control over then. And so in my head now, I'm like, I want to get a hundred percent of the individuals that text me to show up and get arrested because in my head, that's going to resolve my past trauma. It's it's so common to have those trauma loops and it's so hard to be aware of them in those moments and, and thinking that it's empowering and healing when like, it's, it's actually not healing. What, what initially happened. No, I wonder too, if it's this I'm sort of
0: getting this visual of this pendulum. So you were in this opposite sort of, it swung to an extreme on one side but you were still operating in extremes. So then it's swung to another extreme on the other side where you're now the one in control, but still in this very intense environment. And I guess health is where you find somewhere in the middle.
1: You know, at the Avery Center, we have conversations all the time about what are the two extremes? What are some things that we can do to come into moderation? Because as survivors, we've We've either lived in abject poverty and been starving and malnourished, or we've lived in the other end of the extreme of living the high life and flying on private jets and eating caviar and being a sugar baby, but there's there's no in between. And like we don't know, we don't know how to do that. It's such an uncomfortable space to just be. It's so boring. So my team at the Avery Center calls me a fire starter because i instigate stuff not not conflict i don't like conflict but i will instigate new projects that keep us on our toes and keep us in a state of chaos because that's where i thrive and so this like just run the programs that you have and deliver the services and like just be you're already great you're enough i that has taken me years of work to get to a place of not fire starting constantly
0: Right Not having this adrenaline rush. Okay, So interesting. right. And a lo- again, a lot of people, I'm thinking of people who have come out of cults. They're used to an intensity, not being able to sit. Any sitting for a moment means you're lazy, you're wasting time, you're wasting money, you know, and you're not pleasing the other person. you're constantly being watched. And so you get used to physiologically, you get used to that intensity and then something short of that does feel boring. It feels like gray, bland.
1: And you feel bad. Like if you've been told that like, you're lazy, if you're sitting still, you're lazy. If you're not making money, you're lazy. So then sitting still, you also feel those feelings of the shame that has been put on you of you're not worth it. You're not worth it. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing.
0: I one time had this idea for somebody who also was going, going, going and never rested and was told that she was lazy and also being selfish whenever she sat. And looking at her calendar where there were open spaces made her panic.
1: You should see mine, Rachel. There's no open spaces. I've had to work on that with my therapist. Like, there's no stop. It's, I just, I'm just balls to the wall all day.
0: Right. And that could be part of who you are separate from the trauma because that could be part of your wiring. Come on, let's get stuff done. Boom, boom, boom. And that's also how change is made in this world. And the people who are the fire starters, the ones who get stuff done. And I remember saying to her when she said, you know, when I don't have an appointment, um, I panic." And I, every once in a while, something jumps out of my mouth. It wasn't planned, but it made a difference in this situation where I said, why don't you put yourself as an appointment? She said, what do you mean? I thought, wait, I don't know, but I I have to actually think about what I meant. There was something about how she had said she doesn't sleep. She doesn't take care of herself. She doesn't take time to do anything really to go for a walk, listen to music. So I said, if you make yourself an appointment, put your name there, fill that. That visually fill that in your calendar, then you are doing something then you have to also see as just as important as your other appointments. And it could be that you have to replenish and it could be and she didn't believe that she was as important And she had to read some books about the power of rest and sleep and replenishing yourself, et cetera, et cetera, until she got proof on her own that she was as important as these other people. And I think she couldn't do it, but then eventually she did. So that's so interesting just to get that.
1: I actually just did a staff meeting today and was showing everybody, we have a lot of survivors on our team that are just new to like a a legitimate traditional workplace. And so I was kind of showing them how, uh, outlook calendar works. And they were like, Oh my gosh, you have a lot of stuff on here. And I was like, yeah, but I have like, my lunch is scheduled because if I don't put lunch on my calendar, I will not eat. I will do something else during that time. And I have like, you know, go for a walk. I have 30 minutes blocked out for that. Um, but I, I, I what I'm going to take from what you just said is to put my name in the calendar invite first. So Megan take a walk. Because I think that that's such a good reminder that just honoring myself in those moments, even if I can't hold still, (laughs) you know, Megan is going to eat lunch because Megan has an appointment to take care of herself for 30 minutes. I love that.
0: Having those, what we call negative interjects, the word lazy in your head is, is such a powerful thing. And I'm sure you've had to combat a lot of what you've been told to be true about yourself. That is not at all true about you. Yes. And so just coming to like how you how you were able to finally get out cuz you were saying that you were done with the pimps but you weren't done with that life. So what happened there and then we'll finish up? So
1: coming from that place of having been told like if you leave you will be a failure nobody will love you because nobody loves somebody that's been in prostitution. You're broken permanently. You will never be able to get ahead in life. You will be on welfare. You will work a minimum wage job. Just all of this like negative speak of, if you leave this group, this is all you're destined for. You will fail and everything will be a result of you like disobeying. And leaving. And that very much mirrored my childhood when my parents left the group that I was born into, every single thing. So uh, my mom had a health condition, and her parents and the church told her, That's because you left. You know, I was rebellious because I was a teenager, and that's what teenagers do. And When my parents reached out to their family for support, they said, well, that's because you left the church. If you had stayed in the church, she wouldn't be this way. So I had pimps that were telling me these exact same things. So there was this piece, this fear of failure of like, I I don't want to fail and prove them right. But there was also still this, this economic desperation. How do I support my kids. And now I have a criminal record and I have no job history for five years. How do I do this? So I continued to engage in survival sex for about six months. I think that was such a critical period of time though, because my parents decided to start doing a family dinner on Sundays with my sister and I and my kids and they cooked, we came over, we played board games. Like There was nothing huge about those days. Like It was normal. And In those moments, over those six months, I started to realize, like, as you said, controller, like they're thieves, right? They take stuff from you. So my traffickers had taken my family, taken essentially my children, my time with them, taken everything. And then they were selling it back to me as something that I could have in the future. And so having Sunday dinner with my family, I was like, wait, this is what I always wanted. Like These are the moments that I was working so hard for and they're here. Like I can just have them. So there was a lot of like mental deprogramming that was happening during that time while I was still prostituting to pay my bills in December. So December 1st, 2012, I was arrested for the 11th time. And that was the very first operation they had in Vale, Colorado in like 40 years. I was one of the first girls of the night to get arrested. And they put me in like solitary confinement. They put all the other women that they arrested in like a jail cell together. I could hear all of them. Why? I don't know. Again, divine intervention forces the universe. I don't know. But I remember sitting in that cell and I was just like, I'm going to die or I'm going to go to jail. Like this doesn't end well. I will never achieve the things that I was told that I would if I continue doing this. And in that moment, I remember again, like the deep programming. So I know my parents were terrified. I know they didn't see what was happening inside my brain during those six months. But I remember sitting in that jail cell thinking, I'm supposed to be home tomorrow for Sunday dinner and I don't have a way to call my parents. And they know what I'm doing. They know that I'm up here prostituting. What if they think that I was killed? I have no way to communicate with them. And it was like that moment that I was just like, I have people that care about me that maybe they don't have all the answers. Maybe they don't have unlimited resources, but like I can let, put my pride down and say like, I'm lost right now. I don't know what to do next. So I bailed myself out and drove home, went to Sunday dinner the next day. And (laughs) over Sunday dinner was like, well, I went to jail again last night. And I know my parents were just like, oh my gosh, like, when is this going to end? And I said, I'm I'm done. Like I can't do this anymore. I have tiny little bit of savings that I can pay my bills for a few months while I figure it out, but I just can't do this anymore. And so my parents were like, "Okay, we don't know how to help, but we're here." So I was so fortunate that I had about 6 months of very meager savings that I could just pay my bills on. And that time period was so important because I learn to sleep through the night again. I started eating just three meals a day and, you know, a few snacks. Like I really started regulating my system again. And all of that took much longer than that, but that I look back on that time. Like that was such a great foundation of just starting to get healthy again. I got to pick my kids up from school and do homework with them and cook dinner. Like again, just being normal, all of those things sound so boring, but it was so nice to do those things and not have to worry about my phone ringing or getting a threat or traveling. Like I just got to be there. So after six months, I was actually court ordered from my arrest here in Colorado that I either needed to be enrolled in school or I needed to have employment um, as a as part of the terms of my probation. And I realized, you know, I, I my associate's degree at the time. And I was like, I, I'm not going to be able to find a job that keeps a roof over me and my kid's head. I have to go back to school. So I applied uh, to the university of Northern Colorado and got a full ride scholarship. And that's a huge piece of why I was able to stay out Um, because that covered not just my tuition, but I had a living stipend as well to supplement my, my income. So I found a job at a medical office, just about 10 hours a week, which was also a super positive experience. The doctor that I worked for just taught me so much about health, like holistic living and really just empowered me in, you know, I was just like the secretary. I did all the billing and answered phones and stuff, but just the level of trust and empowerment that he had for me because I was like I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have this skill set. But he was like, "No, you've got it. Like figure it out. You're going to be great at this." And then just let me run with it. That was so meaningful to me to especially have a man say like, "Nope, you're good at this. Just do it and I will let you like that's your space." He had really healthy boundaries, um was a great communicator. Like I just really lucked out with that job and going to school. So, I decided because of those experiences to go get my bachelor's in finance which was really where I overcame a lot of that negative like internal dialogue that I had soaked up from my upbringing from society from gender norms from trafficking of you're too stupid or you're just a girl you're feeble minded like don't hurt your brain to be able to go through you know a degree that that is not it's overwhelmingly male dominated. So to go through that helped me feel really powerful. And I excelled at it. I was really good at it. So all of those pieces were a part of that healing journey. It's
0: so nice. First of all, to hear this part of your story, because you know, the other part of the story, well, my stomach is tight. My shoulders, right? Are tense. <laughs> What's going to happen to her next? And now to just be able to decompress, I'm sort of decompressing along with you as you're telling this part of your story. And also when you said that you had a choice between getting a job or going to school, Not that I have any say over what happens in your life, but I was sitting here thinking, oh, please say you went to school. Please say. Yes, I went to school. (laughs) Because I was thinking not only if you have a job, it's a good thing to have a job, but going to school gives you a chance to have a variety of jobs and also to be in an environment where you can ask questions, where you can have your brain be kind of engaged and to whatever grade you might get. It's such an affirmation of what you're capable of and for people to be focused on you, but because of of content and intellect, but for no other reason.
1: Oh my gosh. It was so healing, especially to go into finance and to learn how money actually works was nothing like what my traffickers had told me. And I had a friend who got out of her trafficking situation at about the same time, and she went to... Um, she got her real estate license. And so I'm in my finance program and I'm just having my mind blown by like, oh, money doesn't work the way that I was told it does. And I remember her texting me and saying, Megan, we were lied to. You can't show up to a closing at a house with $300,000 in cash in a suitcase. And no explanation of where it came from. And I was like, I know, like you can't start a business. Like th- there's so many rules to all of this. Like you can do things, you'll get away with it for a little bit, but like, it's going to catch up with you. So both of us were kind of having this, this deprogramming that was happening as we were learning. So I'm, I'm such a huge fan of any type of continuing education, just untangle your brain.
0: And also having your family support during this time, knowing you had some backup And I love when, you know, they were able to say to you, we don't necessarily know what you need and how to help you, but we're here. I love that message. It's so honest, but it's really secure. Like, okay, they're there. I'm really happy for you that you heard that. I'm happy for them too, because they were able to get you back. Okay. So now as just as we finish up, so I know that you then got involved really with helping to develop what the Avery Center does and you're doing so much work now with law enforcement, etc. So tell everyone about the center. We'll also post links. Um, But just tell people what your role is there and sort of what's happening that's new based on the story, especially what's now hopefully going to be different in this world.
1: Oh, man. So I exited my trafficking and um, commercial sexual exploitation in 2012. And I started uh, the Avery Center was actually originally called Free Our Girls in 2014. So I was only two years out. I look back and I was like, I was not ready to start providing victim services, but here we are. I've done a lot of growing and a lot of healing and a lot of my own work instead of trying to work on other people in the past several years. <laughs> yeah. So I really started out. Um, I actually uh, in 2014 spoke at a an evangelical pastor's lunch. It was kind of, that's where I could get my foot in the door locally. And I was like, okay, So I had my little five minute spiel about human trafficking, specifically in the oil fields. Um, The county that I live in is kind of ground zero here in Colorado for oil and gas. And a woman came up to me afterwards and she was like, I want to hear your whole story, which I was like, in hindsight, I would never, (laughs) I would never just go with a stranger now, but um, lessons learned. So I went to lunch with her and told her my whole story. And she said, I'm really glad you started making better choices. That wasn't trafficking though. And I remember thinking, uh Oh, I think I'm going to be in therapy working through this one for a few weeks. <laughs> um, and I was just like, I need to get out of this lunch right now. Mm-hmm. And she said, I don't understand if you weren't chained up, why didn't you just leave?
0: Okay.
1: And at that time I was like, i Don't know, like I'm literally in therapy trying to figure out why, like I wasn't chained up. So why didn't I walk out the door? I already have enough self-blame, like I don't need to hear it from other people. Thank you. So I made kind of an offhand comment to her and I said, it's kind of like a cult. You get brainwashed into this belief system, and then you start to think that like that's the reality. And so there's no need for you to leave if that's just your normal day-to-day life. And seemed to help her in the moment. So I was like, check, please gotta go. Thankfully, talked with my therapist about it, but I also realized people don't understand the issue of sex trafficking. They need a framework that can help at least give them, I call them shelves. Like people need shelves to put information on. And so I went home and I Googled cult characteristics and uh, Dr. Lalik and uh, Dr. Langoni's 15 cult characteristics came up and I was reading them and I was like, Oh my God, I was in a cult, like all 15 characteristics. I can tell you, you know, examples from every single one. So I did a ton of studying, but I developed a training on cultic theory and giving examples of all of the different characteristics. And that helped me heal putting language to some of my experiences, but it also gave me the ability to go out into the community and explain things so that I was not experiencing victim blaming. When I tried to tell my story, still get weird questions to this day every so often, but like there's, there's always, there's always somebody, right? So that's really where the Avery center started. And because I started doing all of this awareness training, I started having caseworkers and therapists and law enforcement come up to me and say like, you know, we have somebody who's experienced some of these things. Can I refer them to you? And I was like, I just do trainings. So in 2016, about two years later, I had done a ton of trainings and really gotten to know Northern Colorado and what services were here and really where the gaps were for survivors. So our first direct service program was a job training program that's in existence still today. Um, We have over an 85% uh, graduation rate and more than 75%. We have a couple graduates, so it'll bump our numbers up here at the end of this month. But more than 75% of our graduates go on to maintain long-term housing, employment, education, families, social supports, all of those things for at least a year after graduation. So we have our job program. We send out over 100 care packages every month across the United States to both exited survivors and currently exploited people. I have a network of 2,700 actively exploited individuals um, on social media. Most of that network's based here in the United States, but also branches out internationally. So I do a lot of outreach and psychoeducation and intervention through that platform, which is probably my favorite thing to do. We have peer support groups, therapy. Uh, we just got federal funding for a housing program, so we have all we have kind of the the full range of direct services for individuals that are still experiencing exploitation all the way through long term recovery. And then last year is when we went through the name change from Free Our Girls to the Avery Center. And with that, we have always prioritized survivors' voices and really believing that those of us who have walked it are the experts in what we need. And when when you talk with a bunch of survivors and they're saying the exact same things are what's needed then that's what we need to be delivering. And so like our housing program is built on interviews that we did in 2017 with survivors about what would have been helpful for housing. So now we have a housing program that was built by survivors for survivors. And so we've always had that research component, but we've never talked about it publicly up until a year ago, because we didn't realize, like my whole team kind of just operated with this assumption of like, well, isn't everybody listening to folks who hold lived experience? And like, isn't everybody reading peer-reviewed journal articles?
0: (laughs) The answer is no, nobody does. Not at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: Nope. People just come in with their own like anecdotal examples and then build an entire program off of what two people have said, or they come in with their own agenda and their belief system, which those things are fine. But when you impress those on other people, that can become really harmful. So, Um, last year, we really started to make this concerted effort to talk about the research component of what we do. So every single thing that we do is evidence-based. We go to survivors first, listen to what they need, Mm -hmm. develop and fund a program that meets that need. And then that's not the only time we're talking with survivors. We're also asking them at regular intervals through those programs. Like, how is this? What needs to change? What could be better? What would you like to see added or or removed from it? And then we're making those adjustments as we go. So we have this living, breathing menu of programs that, that are very much in the growth state right now, but becoming better and better. And we have high success rates because we're listening to the people that that need those services and are receiving them. So um, that's kind of where we're at now. Looking into the future, we have a plan for total world domination in 2022. We're going to be doing a couple really exciting things. So we're rolling out a policy arm of our organization and getting more involved in systemic change. And then we are also going to be doing a cross-country bus tour. So more information to come on that, but really excited. Um, COVID kind of helped us scale our services nationally, virtually, and now that uh, vaccines are available and we can move around a little bit more safely, we're going to be visiting some of the individuals that we've connected with virtually over the last few years.
0: So nice. Oh my goodness. Uh, It's so moving to hear you speak about all these things. And I'm so glad that it's growing and developing and that you have the funding also for this, which is really quite a gift and literally and figuratively and that you're able to take care of basic needs as well as emotional needs. And it's so in, incredibly powerful. I think having an organization like this too lets people know who are who are in the world of being sex trafficked, that this matters to people, that people are going to come together to try to fight it, to try to protect them. There's a place for them to come to. And it would have been so, I think, amazing for you to know that you had a number to call like the place that you have helped to create here. It's so, it's really very emotional. I mean, it's really an incredible thing that you're doing. And I applaud anyone who has an experience and then says, not only do I need to heal, but I have to do something about this. And to then pool your resources, just your time, your effort, everything together with other people who also want to do the therefore. Okay, this happens, therefore... <laughs> All of this needs to happen in response or to prevent. So it's wonderful. And so I'm so excited to be able to to talk to you and for people to learn about you and about the center and... I know I've talked to a lot of people when they say they're often asked, why did they stay in many different situations and being able to have someone who has had the experience who was asked that question, even though it feels like exactly like that check, please kind of moment, uh, it does spur this kind of, it's like, like it plants a seed where you say, actually. I need to know how to answer that question. And that lets me know that that's actually what some people are thinking. And so having that dialogue helps to define really what the public needs to know to understand this. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope to talk to you again and my applause to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: One more thing before you go. Wow. Megan has survived so much. It is unfathomable what people can do to other people without having a second thought about it. The fact that Megan has worked so hard to get her life back The life that she had always deserved to have from the beginning that was stolen from her for a period of time, and that she's working so hard to make a difference on her own and also through the Avery Center is commendable beyond commendable. There are so many things to talk about. I know that I don't want to take up too much time with my words because in these kinds of situations, I think the guest's words are the ones that I want to have stay with you. But I do want to say that it happens so often that when we are introduced to this world, a different world, we realize how multifaceted it is. I didn't know that people are sold from one trafficker to the next. I didn't know that a new trafficker contacts an old trafficker and that there's this whole ring, and women think that they're making a departure and finding freedom or finding somebody else, only to find out that they wound up back in the exact same system, just with different names and different faces. It is an incredibly important thing, though, that laws are being changed and that many more laws need to be changed. I mean, the fact that in some countries and in some places, women who are sex workers who are involved in prostitution, that they're the ones who have to worry about bringing shame on their family as though this was their first choice. I don't think anyone is born into this world wanting that life. At the same time, the pimps, the traffickers, where are they? How many times are they arrested in comparison to the women and the men who are trafficked? That's the problem with so much of this. So much of what I talk about here on the podcast is the fact so often that the victims are less protected than the perpetrators. Cult leaders very often go throughout life feeling quite untouchable, and the law protects them. They also have other people be their fall people, just like L. Ron Hubbard, who had his wife and others break into government offices. He didn't do it himself. Just like Keith Ranieri, who had women recruiting other women into DOS, this inner circle where they were branded, I think that it is incredible to see that. And if you're in a system where the second tier, the people who are the next ones in line are the ones who are getting arrested. They're the ones who have a record. They're the ones who have to worry about their reputation forever, but not the one on top. Then you know you're in a system that is wholeheartedly unhealthy, but also dangerous. Because when the person at the top gets away with it over and over again, and we see this in government then they become more of a monster. They become more entitled because they know they can get away with anything. And if they don't have a conscience to stop them, they'll keep upping their game and do things that are more and more awful. But what I also hope just in conclusion here, again, because I want you to hear Megan's voice after hearing this episode and not necessarily hearing mine, that when you come across someone who has been in a life like this, You don't ask, why did you stay? I hope in these moments you can understand why. why. The feeling that there was no choice. What else were you going to do? Or being beaten so down that you didn't feel deserving of something else. Or feeling trapped, having no money, your family abandoning you, or at least that's what it felt like at the time. And sometimes it does happen. There are so many reasons people stay. And asking that question puts the onus on the victim again. And instead, what you want to ask is, how did he or she whoever was in charge, how did they keep you? What did they threaten you with? Have the focus on them, not on the person who stayed for a variety of reasons, sometimes just to save their own life. And again, as I've said before, instead of asking why you stayed, or wanting to even find out more about someone's story, you want to start by saying, thank you so much for entrusting me with this information. Thank you so much for telling me. And I'm so sorry you went through that. What can I do to support you during your healing? And then save all the other questions for another time. So just know that this happens more often than we think. And there are people out there where you'd never know. You'd never know that's part of their life currently, and you'd never know that's part of their past. So be careful also in the way that you talk about sex workers and prostitutes and the way you might put them down and the way you talk about them. They shouldn't be a joke and they shouldn't be talked about in a way where they are dehumanized by people who just don't understand that life and sometimes that feeling that you don't have any other choice. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at, at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website, at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.